Welcome to this episode of the Medical Affairs Professional Society podcast series, Elevate. I'm your host, Garth Sendham, Communications Director at MAPS. And today we're speaking with Tim Michalishvili, co-founder and CEO of Amadea Pharma and the winners of Tim's Medical Affairs Innovation Olympics. So Tim, uh, before we meet our guests and we talk about platforms to uh, save time for physicians and researchers, can you tell us a little bit about your Olympics? Uh, sure, I'll be glad to, Garth. Some of the most memorable experiences and memories I have from working in the industry for about 18 years was ideation events in which employees came together and we brainstormed over a certain period of time and we competed as well. Or other times when we you know, got outside of our work routine and we actually competed, you know, and we recovered from a lot of that work that brought us closer. So we shared that experience and we created a celebration of sorts of both competition and innovation over one month, about a couple of months ago. And uh, our slogan was dare to share, uh, to build momentum for medical affairs. And so I truly was glad to see some of the global companies such as Takeda, Roche, Estella submit their ideas, as well as other startups across the entire life science spectrum, as well as 19 expert judges from 12 different companies. And I'm grateful to Medical Affairs Professional Society for supporting the event. And I really tip my hat off to our competitors who we're going to hear off from today for their courage, because I think innovation takes courage to share ideas and to accelerate uh, drug development and, and access for patients and physicians as well. So. All right. So joining us today are two of the winners, um, Johan Loritzen, CEO and founder of Probe, and Yair Saperstein, CEO and co-founder of AvoMD. Uh, we also had Sylvia Carter, Community Director at Caring Community at Roche, who is mentioned in the article that will be linked from this podcast, but couldn't join our call today. So we'll also hear her idea, um, but you'll have to go to the article to, to really learn more about it. So let's get started. Johan, could you tell us a little bit about Probe? Of course. Um, so yeah, um, Probe is... In short, an application slash platform that basically gives trial potential trial participants a overview of trials that they can apply to. Um, so it's like based on a uh, pre-filtered algorithm. So it's like an algorithm that basically matches the users and their health data with relevant clinical trials that they're eligible for. Oh, interesting. I'll follow up on that in a sec. There's a lot there. Okay. So, but Yair, can can you tell us a little bit about AvoMD? Yep. AvoMD is bridging the gap between evidence and practice. Rather than uh, tasking clinicians with understanding the 100-page PDFs that supposedly give them guidance on what to do, but are really not actionable and accessible at the point of care, we help translate that into something which is actually actionable. Uh, decision support, which can be inside or outside of the electronic health record and mm -hmm. allows for the societies producing the guidelines to have a form to turn it actionable, allows for the life sciences who really need that last mile to go from their products in the guidelines to now being actually at the point of care to have this last mile solution. 
and allows for clinicians to benefit from having the actionable software, uh, which guides their decisions and allows for them to practice at the best level in a way that's standardized and can improve outcomes. Okay, neat. And Sylvia couldn't join us. So uh, Tim, we're, we're going to have you pinch hit and please tell us a little bit about Sylvia's uh, work with Caring Community at Roche. Sure, absolutely. Um, uh, Caring is a, a social media online community of Roche employees who are patients, who are connected to caregivers or providers within this large organization. And I think uh, Sylvia Carter and Ursula Becker, who presented the idea, uh, illustrated the the importance of the continuity of healthcare, you know, where we realize that a lot of employees who uh, help advance healthcare are patients themselves as well as caregivers. And uh, the community was started in 2020 and now numbers over a thousand employees. Um, and uh, it also draws on a lot of the insights from patients who become experts as well as healthcare providers uh, to uh, drive business development and clinical trial decisions. So as a result of this internal collaboration, they developed a guidebook, a clinical trial guidebook, in order to design clinical trials that are very relevant to the patient population, which I know Johan will talk about. And so uh, I, I found the idea uh, quite interesting, and uh, it kind of brought me back to my first year in the industry uh, at Santa Fe Aventis, where uh, we formed a multidisciplinary team to analyze the thousands of medication errors among employees in this organization and their sequela, uh, and so and we and and we published it as well. So. Interesting. So, uh, you know, yeah, we always yeah. look externally for patient centricity mm -hmm. and, and also for insights. It's so interesting that we could also look internally to our own community of employees for, for these same patient centricity insights. But okay, so let's go to applications and software that save time for physicians and researchers. I will also say it sounds like we're talking about improving clinical decisions and eventually, you know, improving patient outcomes with, with clinical trial enrollment. So, Johan, pre-filtered, you know, health data, the algorithm looks at your data and recommends clinical trials. I remember in a previous life, I was a communications manager at a, a university academic cancer center, and I was surprised that it wasn't just phase one trials that that people were, were looking for, um, for for hope. Everyone could be on some sort of clinical trial, and we wanted those people on clinical trials. So how do we get those people on clinical trials? Yeah. So the brief description of like what the software is, is from a technical point of view. What we actually say is that we're trying to make clinical trials accessible for everyone. Yeah. And the smart thing is that the way clinical trials are structured, it is, as you mentioned, the phases. Like you talked about the phase one uh, of the trials, which is where it's the first, uh, usually the very early stage of human testing. Mm -hmm. um, and as you as you move on uh, to later phases, such as the most common one, like phase two and phase three, the amount of participants needed for the trial usually uh, grow and they usually increase. Um, so there's a huge, you know, need for 
a fast way to recruit a large amount of participants to clinical trials. But, you know, the problem, and, you know, the, the thing with this is that the more participants there is, the higher the quality of the data will be. Um, but how do we actually engage people to do it? Because the reason yeah. we hypothesize, and I as a chronic patient myself experienced this when I tried to gain access to a clinical trial, was that it's very, very hard to read, for example, in an exclusion criteria. Yeah. It's very hard to know whether you suit the trial, which is also like, which trial should I actually apply to? And when you actually make the application, and the whole application process is a mess as well. Um, there's just a lot of you know problems. Um, and when you actually made the application for a trial, you have to go through a time-consuming screening process with the investigator of the trial once again. And we just thought that this was ridiculous because then we thought that, okay, the physicians are just asking into basically health data when they're doing the screening for the trials. So what if we just said the patients and the participants have their own data? It's their data, they own it. What if they could use their data and like unlock the potential of their health data to actually get relevant trial suggestions that fits actually 100% or at least very close to their profile? Yeah. So there, there's like the, the, the most, that's like the, the first thing, right? How do we get people to actually engage in trial? First of all, like make the application slash enrollment procedure easier. But what's also is that there's these documents, which is usually like the information for the participants, where they read what they should go through. And it's like, it's very, very badly structured. And it's not very, as you mentioned before, patient-centered. So what we do is that, like right now, we're we're like extracting important information. How many how many visits do you have to go? Uh, where is the trial located? For how long is the trial running? And what biopsies or samples are you going through? And what's like the the compensation for that? And on the long run, we hope to like make this uh, some videos, yeah. where where researchers simply just explain what their participants should expect from the trial. And, and people who are looking at trials, they don't, I mean, they're already doing enough paperwork and sorting through their own care journey without having to sort through the, the, the paperwork of additional clinical trial participation. We just did this. My, my daughter had a science project and she had some asthma and thought, oh, for the science project, wouldn't it be neat to do a clinical trial? And, yeah. you know, for school and, and, and write about the process of what a clinical trial is. So we, we sorted through clinicaltrials.gov. Um, finally found oh, something yeah. like it was, would work, did all the paperwork, you know, what drove down, we're near Denver, drove all the way down there and did an intro visit. And it turned out that we didn't fit the criteria anyway. And the, yeah. the crashed and burned and it's so frustrating. So to have an algorithm that would say, okay, here's your condition, here's your health data, here are the clinical trials that, that you know, would work for you logistically is, is very attractive. So then, Yair, we get through these clinical trials, we, we, we have new treatments, new drugs, devices, new medicines that, that could help patients. Um, how do HCPs learn about these best treatments at the point of care? How, how do we make the best clinical decisions? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the difficulty. It's kind of hard to do it, right? <laughs> what happens is that there are these guidelines that put together the evidence for 
all right, here's the evidence and here's your next steps of what you should be doing in these different scenarios. Yeah. And they're meant as guidance, right? Clinicians are the ultimate deciders in this case. Um, it's not like it's taking away clinical decisions from them, but if you're supposed to see 20 patients in a day, 30, 40, or <laughs> right, however many you're supposed to, you can't go through a 100-page guideline to help you decide on each decision where there might be many for them, for the patients. Yep. So as a clinician, you want something that's going to guide you more easily, and especially if it can help you with everything else that you're supposed to do, uh, documentation, uh, the whole process of ordering and uh, medication management, the uh, the other processes like prior authorizations that's needed for insurance on certain medications or not when they are indicated, right? And how to go through all these external processes um, that just take up time. It would be great in the uh, hypothetical sense if I had the ability to get, here's exactly what I need to know to help make my decision and inform it. And then also here's something that in that process can also help me with all of these externals that I need to do so that I have more time for the things that are human to interact with the patient, to actually understand what they need, to think it through, right? All of these different aspects. So the one side of it is these long guidelines. The other side of it is this is not a problem that's come up now. This is a problem that we've been trying to deal with as a medical and technology society uh, for a while. And some of the solutions that have come up include electronic health record alerts, which say, hey, you're in this workflow, but you might not be doing it exactly right. How about come off it in this way? And by having these alerts, it, it really is more of an interruption to the workflow, whether it's interruptive alerts or non-interruptive alerts, it, it still is distracting you. And by doing it in this way, it uh, causes alert fatigue. So 98%, uh, I think is the statistic now of these alerts are dismissed with no further action. Oh. So they're not effective over a long period of time, right? And alerts are getting smarter. There are these smart alerts that only come up in the right context. And, but then they're still in the context of all of these other alerts. So that, that doesn't work too well either. No. Um, and then the third part of it is there are other startups that are trying to solve this problem by saying, well, we can create a solution that solves this disease or that disease and how to make decisions on specific diseases. And while that's wonderful, they're very disparate and they're very siloed. You know, you need something as a clinician that's able to incorporate for a complex patient, here's all the things that you need to consider. And also for my individual decision that I'm making, how do I make that decision? It's not always by disease state within a very siloed decision that you need to access that takes longer to access than it is to even go through. So these apps don't really solve it in the way that care is actually given. With all of that being put together and me being an internal medicine physician and feeling it, yeah. you know, I said there's got to be a better way to do it. And my story was that I tried to create this in my own way. Um, it involved index cards, writing out algorithms, storing some of uh, my pre-filled prior auths in a safe drive so that I can access it easily. Um, storing my pre-written notes that I could just edit easily in another drive that I can always pull in. And this dream and kind of low-tech solution took me to PJ, um, my co-founder, who was actually dealing with the same issue. Makes sense. Most clinicians do. And coming up with his own solution, which was basically the same thing, um, just that he had started building it about five years before I met him. And so when I met him, it was like, wow. 
we got to work together. We got to figure this out and, and see how we can actually make this change. And so the way that we're reimagining decision support mm-hmm. is much more of a Netflix model. It's like, as you are there in the context with your patient, you want to understand how within the context of everything that's known about my patient, what are the right pathways that I might want to use? You know, like Netflix shows here, the movies suggested to you. It's like, here are the pathways suggested to you. And then you can go down the pathways that are relevant because you have them there from the patient phenotypes, from the patient context. So it's not something that's interrupting you and interrupting your current workflow. It's a totally different reimagined workflow that makes it much faster to go down, generate notes, generate orders, have pre-filled prior offs, everything that's needed, but also allowing for physician input for Mm -hmm. different things that are relevant. Like if the patient doesn't want to proceed with surgery, takes you down a different path. It's not a forced order set that takes you there. It's not a computer making the decision. Mm -hmm. It's the computer helping you with everything that's needed within the context of everything known inside or outside of the electronic health record so that you can be faster, more standardized and better. Well, so first of all, I love that a tech company started on index cards and then transitioned to <laughs> to, to a safe drive. That's uh, um, and it sounds like it's good that um, you 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 have a co-founder who said, you know, maybe let's move beyond index cards. Um, the other thing that I thought was really interesting that you said, I think people are wary of kind of algorithmic care. They feel like you know the machines are going to dictate their um, care journey. But what you're saying is, let's let's use Let's use care care decision support to take all of the busy work off the doctor's plate so that doctors can do the human work of doctoring. You got it. Okay. So uh, back to Johan. So I, I'm interested to hear who who is using, you know, I'm thinking, how do we bridge this into medical affairs specifically? So what are some of the types of patients, what are some of the types of conditions or researchers that may be among the first to sign up um, for for probe. You know, who who are you seeing using your platform? I I hopefully in the long run, of course, see everyone using the platform because when we've you know built a huge database, then it will be very easy for the researcher to simply upload their trial and just make like, uh, I don't know if you know GitHub, but there's like like a pull request, which basically means that I'm notifying everyone to come and help. And they can just basically notify all of the patients that fits their trials. Um, and yeah. that's, you know, that that's like, there's the healthy participants. And there, of course, uh, there's more healthy participants than there's not. Of course, there's the thing was like, how do we define a healthy participant? That's, that's a whole nother story because no one's really healthy, uh, to be honest. Yeah. But, you know, the, the thing is that there's like, if you look at it from, from the perspective of like the current manual time-consuming process, then um, there's like the, the lowest hanging fruits for us, which will be, for example, the muscular dystrophies, right? Uh, that's the, I have spinal muscular atrophy. Mm-hmm. And the muscular dystrophies have like, usually in the clinical trials, some insane amount of inclusion and exclusion criteria. And some of it is even something like you have to have this exact point mutation at the genome um, to actually participate in the trial. And people don't even know what a point mutation is. So like, where do I start, right? Um, the data may be available, but but the most important thing is that if 
like if the data is not available, then the algorithm actually says, hi, you need to get taken this test at the hospital. And then we will know whether you fit the trial or not, but you're very close to fitting the trial. So that's basically like the way we address that issue. So, so you're saying healthy patients too. Well, healthy patients, is that an oxymoron? Yeah. Anyway, healthy patients. Uh, healthy participants, so yeah. <laughs> healthy participants. So you're saying anyone yeah. can be in a clinical trial. And I see these things all the time. You know, I, I'm near CU Boulder and sometimes I think it'd be fun to go run on a treadmill and have them measure my oxygen, <laughs> whatever, you know, just, just to see interesting things in clinical trials. You know, are, are you saying that that people should sign up for probe and go looking for fun and interesting clinical trials as well? Yeah, that's definitely what I'm saying. Clinical trials is for everyone. And I think the, the reason that, you know, when I talk to people about, you know, just a very second, like normal people that doesn't have any background within like medical care. Um, mm -hmm. When I say the word clinical trials, they just look very weird at me because for many people it's, it's such a strange thing. Um, and that is because we have not been very good at actually explaining what the clinical trial is. So people run away uh, whenever you mention the word clinical, right? Um, so, so what we should do is that we should focus on, which is a part of like making trial trials accessible, by actually simplifying the concept of clinical trials and reducing it to uh, reducing the language to someone that everyone understands, right? And the way that we we do this is actually saying, well. The, the old saying, right, we're standing at the shoulder of giants. There are so many diseases, like even uh, paracetamol, right? People would never have been able to use painkillers if it wasn't for someone actually doing clinical trials. And much of the, much like, for example, um, if you have like lung inflammation, yeah. then if we didn't have like penicillin, you would never have been able to treat that. And like 10, 10 years ago, now maybe like, 10, 20, 30 years ago, there was a lot of people actually dying from um, this lung disease because there wasn't any available drug. So, and the last thing is that when you have like healthy participants, right? Because chronic participants are already motivated to be a part of a trial because of their disease, right? They want to help. But for healthy participants, it can usually, they have maybe they have, for example, a relative, a close relative with a, with a chronic disease. So what is the most direct way that a, that a relative can help uh, the drug development and help the life quality of their relative? Well, that is by engaging in a clinical trial. So we know whether a drug will be something that can help them or not. It doesn't matter, you know, money can't buy time and money can't buy happiness and it surely can't by itself uh, buy a drug and a therapy for the patients, right? So there is an, an obvious like motivation for for everyone, I think, to actually be a part of the trials. And by simplifying, you also demystify and destigmatize clinical trials. Yeah, you know, I see the same thing when 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 a patient when a doctor recommends a clinical trial to, to to a patient, the patient says, "Oh no, you know, am I in really big trouble? You know, do do yeah. I am I beyond the standard of care? And all of a sudden, I need a clinical trial." Well, yes, that that. Sometimes is the case, but it's also the case that anybody can participate in a in a clinical trial. All right. So yeah. Tim, to, to yeah. not, not not to speak for Sylvia, but I want to hear more about patient communities and the insights that we can get from internal industry uh, patient communities. Do do you know some of the things that Sylvia is finding from Care Ring at 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 Roche 
as part of the competition, what did you hear? Uh, yes. Uh, so I really want to uh, ask Sylvia to probably share a lot of that those details um, on, on the next episode or perhaps in that Innovate article. Uh, I know that they have, uh, you know, a big employee population uh, across 60 countries that's scattered across, you know, worldwide, and uh, they've, they're already improving their clinical trials. Um, uh, what, what, you know, what I'll mention, though, to, uh, you know, our participants here today, our winners from the Innovation Olympics, is that uh, I think we in medical affairs really need to listen to their insights because they are... Uh, physicians, their healthcare providers, uh, as well as a patient, right, in Johan's case. And they're solving, I think, for healthcare uh, continuity, uh, you know, by accelerating drug development. And connecting the right patients to clinical trials, as clinical trials represents a huge cost in drug development. Two-thirds of the total costs to develop a drug for a product, which is about $6 billion, uh, and and uh, and also in Yair's case with Abo MD, I think they uh, he's imp- he's helping uh, you know our industry and cross life sciences improve quality of healthcare. I know that they're partnering with a lot of organizations, associate professional medical associations, uh, and so I think ultimately if we he- listen to the insights, given that they are winners in a medical affairs innovation Olympics event, I think that already tells us that. We are listening to their insights, and um, we're continuing the conversations. All right. Well, let's let's leave it there for today. I I, I do want to say that it's interesting that you know Yair and Johan, you're both designing from within the systems you're designing for. You know, um, Yair as a physician and Johan as a as a patient, like you looked at a problem, there was a problem, and you're solving something very organic, which I think is really interesting instead of sort of layering something in from the outside. But thank you, Tim. Yair, Johan, uh, for joining us today. To learn more about how you can partner with these platforms, visit amadeapharma.com, avomd.io, and probe.dk. MAPS members, don't forget to subscribe, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Medical Affairs Professional Society podcast series, Elevate.